0: set them free. Some think of these as fables with no relevance today. But God's past power never passed away. The great I. right for stranded souls in darkness who long to see the light or oh, for those who tread a troubled road and feel they can't go on there's a promise we can stand In every test the great I am still is I could lose it all and still be blessed The great the I am still is I'm a sinner saved by grace because The great I am still is Oh, but I'm not today what I once was But the great I great!
1: good boy I'd like to have some more of that some of y'all just ain't got much religion though I was watching you I don't know what it would take to get a smile out of you you think you come to church you got to sober up in the sober way not the other way and um, I wish you'd get enough religion you could get blessed real good every now and then but you know you don't have to overdo it but we don't want you rolling down the aisle but for heaven's sake loosen up and enjoy it huh we are going to heaven one of these days. Might as well act like it's going to be a good ride, huh? Amen. That was good. First John, in your Bible this morning, please. First John chapter number one. First John, chapter one, the subject today is the sins of God's children. In other words, the sins of the Christian. The sins of God's children. And uh, would you stand with me as we read God's word, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7? I'll begin reading. 1 John 1 7. Follow with me in your Bible. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And everybody read the next phrase together. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. A double L all sin. How many sins? All All sin. If we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins however he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, a page or so over, chapter 3 and verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. And here's a definition of sin. God's definition of sin. For sin is the transgression of of the law, say that with me, read that phrase: sin is the transgression of the law. Heavenly Father, fill me with your spirit again, I ask, and stir the hearts of your children as I speak primarily to them. in Christ's name. Amen. and you may be seated. The Bible says there in First John chapter one and verse eight, that we all sin. We all sin, but that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. The entire book of 1 John was written to Christians. There's hardly a word in 1 John that was written to unsaved persons. So today, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you are God's child by definition. You've been born into his family. This book was written specifically to and for you. What I want you to hear very clearly today is that God takes sin very, very seriously. We don't. We trivialize it. We minimize it. It says about Ahab in the Old Testament that he took lightly the sins around him. He took them lightly. Now, the NIV translation refers to that as he, he took sin, he trivialized sin. If I could describe Christianity in America today, it might be we've trivialized sin. We don't take it with the gravity and the seriousness. We do it flippant. We take it flippantly. We shrug, shrug our shoulders. Everybody sins. No big deal. But God takes it seriously because sin is rebellion against His authority. We don't do it physically, but when we sin knowingly, it's as if we shake our fist in the face of God and say, God, I know what you said, but I really just don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, for a number of weeks, I've preached to you the different approaches to the great doctrine of our salvation, and uh, I think I've spent about six or seven weeks so far on that But what I want to do today is separate out how God deals with the sins of His children and compare that with how God deals with the sins of the unsaved because He doesn't deal with them the same. Now, I hope you already know that, but many don't. Probably most Christians never think about the Bible's teaching on this. God, hear me, does not deal with the sins of the believer in the same way that he deals with the sins of the unbeliever. And to get that distinction is a big step forward in how to live the Christian life. Let's talk first about the sins of the unbeliever, the unsaved person. Now, this is what I've been preaching. But God deals with the unbeliever in this way. He deals with the sins of the unbeliever like a judge deals with a lawbreaker. Now stop and think about that. God deals with the sins of the unsaved person in the same manner that a judge deals with someone who has broken the law. You see, God is just. And I've preached to you numerous times from the text, Hebrews 2.2, 2, Every sin and every transgression receiveth a just a just recompense of reward. Every sin will be accounted for by the unbeliever. There will be no sin ever excused, whether it be a murder or whether it was stealing a cookie. In eternity, God will deal with every sin of the unsaved people that are there. Now, I preached an entire message to you about This means then that there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Don't think that somebody who lived a relatively moral life, someone who was an upstanding person in so many ways but was a Christ rejecter, don't think that they are going to be assigned to the same degree of punishment in hell that a a murderer, a fiend, a Hitler, a Charles Manson will be assigned to. They won't be. Or that would not be just. God is a just God. If He is just, He will not punish sin any more than it deserves, nor will He punish it any less than it deserves. Every sin and every transgression receives a just recompense or reward, not more than it deserves and not less than it deserves. And so God will deal with every Christ rejecter, every unbeliever, as the judge deals with the lawbreaker, and that is he will simply deal out justice under the law that he has already given to us in the Scripture. No exceptions. No exceptions. Now then, there's only one message in the Bible for an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever here today, or you're watching right now our program on television, or you're on the live stream somewhere? I only have one message for you if you're not a believer, a sincere and genuine re- believer in Jesus Christ. And my message is this: It was the message that when the jailer came to the Apostle Paul and said, "What must I do to be saved?" The only thing that Paul said to him was, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And that's my message to you today. Believe. Repent of your sins, which the jailer had already done. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the only word God has for an unsaved person today. Believe or nothing, my friend. That's the only word of the Lord to you today. Repent and believe. Understand that Christ is your sin bearer. That Jesus was your Passover lamb who died and shed his blood that God could pass over your sins. Understand that Jesus Christ was your scapegoat, who all the sins of your lifetime, past, present, and future, were placed upon him by the priest, the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, or by God himself, and placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he hung on the cross, and he paid for every sin. And your sins can be carried away if you will repent, and you will believe in Christ as your Savior. That's the only message for the unsaved person, the sins of the unbeliever. But let's talk now today about a whole new fresh area, and that's the sins of God's children. And I look here in 1 John, and in verse number 7, if we walk in the light, that's a Christian, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from A-double-L, all of our sins. All means sins past. All means sins present. All means sins future. Are you telling me, Bill Monroe, that Jesus Christ has already paid for and cleansed me of the sins I haven't even committed yet that will inevitably happen? That's what I'm telling you. That's what I'm telling you. Is that what it says? If we say we have no sin, and there's always a few self righteous folks like that around, oh, I don't sin. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So do you know what I know today based on that passage? <laughs> I'm not in very good company. <laughs> I'm looking at the biggest crowd of sinners in Florence right now. Because <laughs> if you say you have no sin, he said, you're, you're, you're not telling the truth. There's not one of us. Jim Simons, can you believe Jim Simons has sinned? I'm just picking on my friend. He sits on the front, so I've got somebody to pick on handily down here. Every one of us, has the missionary ever sinned, the missionary? Has the man standing in the pulpit delivering the message ever sinned? Oh, yes. To my chagrin, yes. So we can't deny that. And we continue verse 9, if we confess, though, our sins, Boy, look at this. Is this a wonderful promise? He is faithful, and he's just. I said God is a just God. Well, he's just in dealing with sin in punishing it, but he's also just in forgiving it. Isn't that wonderful? He is just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us. But another reminder, if we say we have not sinned, why we're calling God a liar, and that's a serious thing, isn't it? The sins of God's children. Now, quickly, go with me. Keep your finger in, John, but Romans, if you will. Go to the book of Romans with me, chapter number 6, Romans 6. And here are some startling verses when you begin to think about them deeply. Romans chapter 6, verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we then continue in sin knowing that Jesus has paid for all of our sins in order that grace may abound? God forbid Strongest term he can use. No, we can't continue sinning that God may heap up more grace. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And I want you to notice those words, dead to sin, because the Bible says that the Christian is dead to sin. Say that with me, dead to sin. I'm dead to sin if I'm saved. You're dead to sin if you're saved and you're a believer. So what does that mean? Here's what it is. Christ, when he went to the cross, he was there as my substitute. He hung there in my stead. He was punished for my sins, and God took all of my sins, past, present, future, and he placed them upon Jesus Christ who died paid the ultimate death penalty for my sin. Now, in the mind of God, or to say it like this, God looked at the cross and he not only saw his son there, he saw me there. He saw you there if you were a believer because Christ was there as my substitute, in my stead. He died in my place. And so God says, I so identify a believer with the Lord Jesus that it's as if I have already died for my sins in Christ. Now, here's a truth. It's a principle. Think with me logically. Once a person is dead, then the law has no more claim upon them. Nobody is going to go and charge a corpse with an offense. If I'm dead, I'm not going to be charged with any more offenses. There's a funeral home next door. I never have seen a deputy sheriff ride over there walk in and drop a warrant in a casket. Why? They're dead. <laughs> they're supposed to be dead. Everybody over there. So if they're dead, the law ends When death begins, doesn't it? Oh, we may have a claim against an estate, but that's not the same thing as as the person. Now, so Christ died, and God views that as me having paid the penalty for my sins. And God looks at me today as a believer, and I get this, as all my sins already having been punished at the cross. All of my sins have been punished At the cross. Back when? The sins that I commit, let's say theoretically, tomorrow have already been paid for at the cross. Turn back to Romans chapter 4 there with me. Let me show you where that is stated scripturally. Romans chapter 4, verse 7. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. That's a saved person whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, impute is an accounting term, meaning to charge to. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not charge sin. Why will the Lord not charge sin to a believer? He will not charge, bring charges against me regarding my sin because Christ has already paid for them. And that is the basis for my love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your hand right there in Romans, if you will, but turn with me, please, also to the book of uh, to First Peter, chapter two, because it's such an important teaching. I just I, I want to make sure, my time is short, but I really want you to get this. First Peter, chapter two. Then we're going back to Romans. First Peter, chapter two, verse twenty four: Who his own self, that's Jesus, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being, here it is again, dead to sins. God views me as already have, having paid the death penalty because Christ was my substitute and he paid it. And God said, Jesus bore all our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we now being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes we are we are healed. So God views my sins as having already been paid for. The debt paid, they're punished at the cross. Now, go to Romans with me again, chapter 6, and let me show you an amazing thing here that most people are not aware of about baptism. And as Baptists, we, ba- we believe in baptism. We teach that the first thing, the first, very first thing, that a believer ought to do after you've been saved. The first thing is an act of obedience and submission to the Savior, is you ought to follow the Lord and believers baptism. And we baptize here almost every Sunday night. And people come and they meet with our deacons over here. They're instructed in baptism. We take you up into the baptistry pool and we baptize you just like Jesus was baptized under the water after salvation. But notice what it says here in Romans chapter 6 again and beginning in verse number 3 because this will give you new insight into your baptism. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, meaning we totally identify with his death. And we are buried with him in our act of baptism. And we bury dead people, don't we? And we bury people in the water that like as, symbolic, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should be raised up to walk in newness of life. Baptism says, I'm coming up out of this watery grave and I'm going to live like a different person from now on because the old person was dead and buried in that water, and now this new person that I am in Christ is going to live in newness of life, it says. And then look at verse 5. For if we have been planted, we plant things in the ground, bury things. If we have been planted in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified, dead, that the body of our sins could be destroyed and that henceforth we should not, be, we should not serve sin anymore. So when I'm saved, God views me, the old person, the old sin, sinner as being dead to sin. Now last week I spoke to you on this subject the new relation that we have and the new motive that we have in our Christian life. And so when I'm saved and when I'm in Christ, my relationship with God changes. I move from not being His child because until you're saved, you're not born into His family. As many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. And we're born into the family of God when we are saved. And so now God is my heavenly Father, my Papa, Abba Father, my, that endearing term the Bible uses like a little child says about the dad that he has so much affection for as He jumps up into the dad's lap, Papa, Father, Papa, Papa, good to see you home from work today. And so now God is my heavenly Father. And that means something else, too, in this new relationship. It means that if you're saved, you and I are brothers and sisters, that there is a family issue here, and that I am to love you and care for you like I would my earthly brother and sister, maybe even more so in some ways. And so I have a new relationship once I'm saved. God is my Father That that relationship is established just like it is in the birth of a baby. A baby's born into your home, and the relationship is there and it's sealed and it's permanent, and the baby will always be your child. And you that baby could disgrace you. That baby could go into some horrible kind of sin and ruin the family name. You could even say, I'm taking you out of my will. I never want to see you again and disinherit the child. But you know what? There's still your child. That relationship cannot be broken. Now, the fellowship can be broken. You you won't have very good time together. But the relationship is absolutely permanent. And when you're born into God's family, he is your heavenly father. And he always will be your heavenly father. That relationship is is established. Now, however, I have a new motive. And my motive now is not fear of God. I'm not cringing, saying, oh, I don't want God. If I sin, God's going to, he's going to get me. No, no, no. You don't understand the Christian life. No, if I sin, I hurt my father. And he may have to take action to deal with my sin, but he loves me. And he's not out to get me if I don't keep his laws perfectly. He's going to deal with me in grace. He's going to deal with me in mercy because I'm his son. I'm his child. And he loves me. And so now my motivation is not a cringing fear of God that I'm going to displease him. My motivation now becomes gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. What an ingrate. What in the world if I would take his gift of salvation and then say, I want to go to heaven and use you for my ticket for my fire escape, but I don't intend to live for you. What what would you think of a person like that? You would think someone gave their life to rescue this person, and they have no interest in pleasing them? What kind of an ingrate would that be? And so gratitude now. I'm no longer under the law. The Bible says when I'm saved, I'm out from under the law. I'm out from under the Ten Commandments law, but there's a higher motivation comes into my life now based on my love for the Lord, based upon Him extending His grace, based upon the fact that my Heavenly Father, I don't want to hurt His heart I want to please my heavenly Father. I told you last week, I remember this. My mother was, I guess I loved my mother more than anybody I've ever loved other than my own wife. And my mother was such a kind, gentle woman. Many of you knew her. And the worst thing that could ever happen to me is I could do something and it would displease mother. And sometimes she would tear up and cry and she'd say, Bill, I'm so disappointed in you. Oh, man, it was the worst punishment. It was far, I dreaded that far more than her ever giving me a spanking. When I saw those tears well up and her lip tremble, and she would say, Bill, I'm so disappointed you knew better than that. I mean, it ruined my day. You know what I mean when you disappoint someone you love. Now, go down to verse 15 of chapter 6. Paul says, okay, then what then? I hear the wheels turning. Then if all our sins have been forgiven, even in the future as a Christian, shall we sin because we're not under the law anymore but under grace? And he raises his voice, the strongest Hebrew term he can use, God forbid, no, no. You can't say, I've been forgiven of my sins and I have my relationship with the Lord established eternally and therefore I'm going to go out and live any way I want. No, God forbid. If you're a Christian, I think you, you get that deep in your heart. So what does happen then when a Christian sins? All right. When I sin now as a Christian, sin does not break my relationship with the Lord. He's still my father, but it breaks my fellowship. And it puts a wall between us because God hates sin. God hates sin. And so my fellowship with him is broken. And if I'm truly saved, I sense that in my spirit and in my conscience. Now, if you're taking notes with me, put down two categories of sins that Christians commit because even as Christians, all our sins are not the same. The first category is when we fall into sin. When we fall into sin, or I call it unintentional sin. I'm going through my life today. I I even had my Bible time and my prayer, but something came up, and I got focused in the wrong direction. Temptation comes in. My flesh goes after me. The devil is after me. And in some way, I commit a sin of word or thought or deed. It's unintentional. I didn't plan on doing it. I hadn't been warned about it. I fell into sin. Those daily things, that thought that comes across your mind when maybe a lustful thought when you see a person of the opposite sex. Or maybe it's a Maybe it's you fibbed a little bit. You kind of shaved the truth in a conversation with somebody. You exaggerated it or whatever. Or maybe it's an attitude you have towards someone where you don't love them as Christ would have you love them or whatever it may be. So you fall into sin, an unintentional sin. It's not an addiction. You're not in bondage to it. You're going through your life. You didn't, didn't think about it and Pow, it, it just rose up and bit you, as it were, unintentional sin. You give in to temptation. It can be a word, a thought, or a deed. Now, if that happens and, you're a sin, and you've been saved and the Holy Spirit's living here, you're immediately convicted of that sin. You're immediately convicted of that sin. You know it was wrong. The Holy Spirit rises up within you and says, Bill, you sinned. You are wrong, pal. And what do I do then? Well, I'm aware of it. I repent of it. Repent means to change my mind. A change of mind that's so strong it will create a change of direction. So I turn from it. I don't lay there and wallow in it. I don't keep on enjoying it. I realize it. I repent of it. And I go to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, our text. If we confess our sins, what does that? If you have your Bible there, take that word "confess," First John one nine, and put a circle around it. If you've never done this, if you've been coming here, you've already done this. Put a circle around that word "confess," and it means to agree with God, or it means to take God's side. So here you are; you've fallen into this sin. You're convicted of it. you repented of it. You're going to change. You get over here on God's side, and you become the accuser of yourself. And you say, I know that was wrong. That was a violation of the Scripture. And, Lord, I acknowledge my sin to you. I confess it. I agree with you what I did was wrong. I'm not defending it one bit. And you confess it. You take God's side. Jesus taught us the Lord's prayer, the model prayer. The model prayer says, Our Father. It's only for Christians. I tried to make this point last week. You got the whole world saying the Our Father, and they've never even been saved. Makes no sense when you think about it at all. But when you're a Christian, I can look up there and say, Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. I honor you. I respect you. I worship you, God. And Lord, I fell into the sin. And you've convicted me, and I repent of it. And Lord, I agree that it's wrong. Will you forgive me? I confess it. And the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All, a double Oh, but can he forgive me of that? Preacher, 20 years ago, do you know what I... All, all, I'm, pastor, do you, all, you can't think of a reason and excuse. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Now, you need that. You need to get a hold of that because that's the cure for so much of the guilt that people go around with that, that bothers them and bogs them down, all. I read where great evangelists fell into sin. It wasn't a big sin, as most people would think of it. But he said, I was busy in the morning. I was at my house, and my wife came, and she asked me something, and I was preoccupied. She just got on my nerves. And I spoke real harshly to my wife. Anybody here ever done that? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to have to referee a brawl right here in the middle of the service. Anybody ever done that? Sure, we've all done that. We've spoken. I've spoken unkindly to Norma with impatience, set to my shame. He said, the moment that I spoke to my wife like that, a big cloud came over my soul, and the sun was dampened. It was dark, and my spirit was gloomy. I knew it was wrong. Nobody had to tell me. And so he said, I went, and I said to my wife, would you forgive me, honey? Yes. And I went in my bedroom, and I got down by the bed, and I said, oh, Lord, here I am, a preacher of the gospel. But I bit my wife's head off. I spoke to her unkindly, unlovingly. Lord, I confess that it was wrong. And then listen to what he said. I got up. And while I was praying, the clouds had moved away, and the sun came out real bright. And the flowers were blooming, and the birds were singing, I felt clean, clean. Do you feel clean, Christian? You keep short accounts with the Lord, meaning you don't let it pile up to where your whole life becomes miserable and complicated. I felt clean. Second category of sin for the Christian, willful sin. Willful sin. This is not the person who falls into temptation. This is the Christian who knows it's wrong, continues to do it, knowing all the while that their fellowship is broken with the Lord, and they're convicted of it, and they refuse to repent of it and deal with it. How does God deal with that person? Well, with the first one who had this momentary lapse, God deals with them, I forgive you. You're forgiven of all your sin. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for it. But this person just goes on knowing it is wrong, presumptuous sin, willful sin, not caring how it affects the Lord or his or her relationship with the Lord. Turn with me. It's described in the book of Psalms number 89. Psalm number 89 is a powerful description of what I'm talking about. Psalm 89, and verse 32, or 30. Psalm 89:30: "If his children forsake the law and walk not in His judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments." Then, Okay, that's the willful sin. That's the person going on knowing they're doing wrong. They break my statutes. They walk not in my judgments. They forsake my law. They keep not my commandments. Then will I visit their transgression with the rod, the rod of correction, the rod of reproof, and their iniquity with stripes, meaning he beats them with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, I won't take from him, I don't cancel their salvation. I will not utterly take from him nor suffer my f- faithfulness to fail. In fact, my covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that's going out of my lips. The Lord says, I'll give you eternal life. Your relationship will never be broken, but boy, your fellowship can sure be broken And so God says, if you continue in sin, knowing it's wrong, I'm going to correct you with the rod of correction. Now, I'm going to turn and read to you from Hebrews chapter 12. And everybody turn with me there. This is a passage you don't hear read very often in any church. And I'm going to read it because I think it is so profoundly important. And in this audience today, probably 95% of the people in here profess to be a Christian. Now, if you're a if you're a professing Christian, and you believe the Word of God, and you, you and the two are synonymous, you can't be a Christian and not believe the Word of God. This is one of the most solemn verses or passages in all Scripture, and so read it with me, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children? My son, see that's the children of God. That's God's the sons of God. My son. "'Despise not the chastening, correction of the Lord, "'nor faint when you're rebuked of him. "'For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. "'He doesn't do it because he hates us. "'He chastens us because he loves us. "'And he scourgeth every son, every. "'Not a single Christian is without correction.'" And if you endure your chastening, God dealeth with you as he does with a son, not an unsaved person. For what son is he whom his father never spanks him, never punishes him, never chastens him? But if you are without chastisement, if you can sin and get away with it, whereof all are partakers, chastisement, then are you bastards and not sons, illegitimate. You're a false professor by definition if you can flagrantly, willfully go on in your sin and not have the chastening hand of God upon you. Now, you don't hear that kind of talk in this church much. (laughs) Some of you hear that every week, but you don't hear that here. But That's a legitimate use of of a word that we don't use often. But I think that's one of the most solemn things in the world. You know why I know I'm saved? It ain't got nothing to do with being a preacher. It's because I can't sin and enjoy it. That's why I know I'm saved. Boy, I got a lot of blemishes and and flaws, but I can't sin and get away with it. Wow, my conscience eats me up and the clouds come over. And the gloom sets in until I deal with it the way God wants me to deal with it. I read the same passage. Follow with me in your King James, and I'm a King James person, but occasionally I use my Amplified Bible because it simplifies it. Begin in verse 5 with me. Have you completely forgotten the divine word of appeal and encouragement in which you are reasoned with and addressed as sons? My son, don't think lightly or scorn to submit to the correction and discipline of the Lord nor lose courage and give up and faint when you're reproved or corrected by him. Verse six, the Lord corrects and disciplines everyone whom he loves and he punishes, he even scourges his sons whom he accepts and welcomes in his heart, to his heart and cherishes. You must submit to and endure the correction for discipline. God is dealing with you as with sons, for what son is there whom the Lord does not thus train and correct and discipline? And if you're exempt from correction and left without discipline, in which all of God's children are, share, then you are illegitimate offspring. You're not a true son at all. Moreover, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we yielded to them and respected them for training us. Shall we not much more cheerfully submit to the Father of spirits and so truly live? Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short period of time and chastened us as seemed proper and good to them. But God disciplines us for our certain good that we may become sharers in his holiness. And for the time being, for the present... No discipline brings joy, but seems grievous and painful. But afterwards, in the long view, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, a harvest of fruit which consists in righteousness in conformity to God's will, his purpose, his thought, and his action, and it results in right living and right standing with God. My, what powerful, powerful words. My time is gone. I'll just give you four things. I'll just read them to you. The principles by which God chastens you, because I want you to understand all the Bible teaches about it. Look in verse number five. All true Christians are chastened or disciplined. It's a mark of salvation, not God's disfavor. He will not let you sin and get away with it because he wants that intimacy with you. And in verse five, it says every son. In verse eight, it says we are all partakers of it. No exceptions. Verse 8, if not, we're, we, we are really not saved if we, are not, if we are without chastisement. And verse 10, the purpose is not to punish the Christian. It is to correct our behavior and make us holy. Number two, God's corrections are always appropriate. He doesn't spank us too gently nor too harshly. It's just If it's a small sin, then the chastisement may be a gentle correction. But do you know the Bible even has this horrible warning? It talks about the sin unto death. That It is possible for a Christian to commit a sin that God will even remove that person from the walk of the living and take them to heaven. Number three, all suffering is not chastisement. So I'm speaking to someone today and maybe you're a person who has, uh, you've found out you have cancer or you've lost a loved one or whatever. Don't immediately assume that's chastisement. If it's chastisement, you know the connection. The Holy Spirit will let you know that. And lastly, this doctrine prevents the abuse of grace. In the book of Galatians chapter 5, it says, Don't use your liberty as an occasion to the flesh. And, boy, that is a series of messages in our world today because many people, all they talk about is grace, 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 grace. We even have a name for it now. We call it the hyper-grace movement. And by that I mean we don't take sin seriously at all. We just blow everything off. Well, God's grace takes care of that. No, if you understand what the teaching is of God's chastisement, you're not going to go on piling up sin because you know that God will give you a whooping, as my daddy used to say. He will chastise you to bring you back and to help you to live a holy life. He's more interested in your holiness than he is your happiness. God is more interested in you being holy than he, he is you having all the things and toys that you want in life because he loves you our heads are bowed you've heard the message this morning now on how God deals with the sins of his children in our society today we take sin very lightly but God does not take sin lightly as I've just described And yet, it's clear from reading the Bible that God does not deal with the sins of unsaved Christ rejectors in the same way that he deals with the sins of his children. Now, if you're one of God's children, and as I've spoken to you this morning, you've heard from God's word how that your sins stand between you and the Lord, and your fellowship is broken, and you can look back to the days as a believer, when you really live for the Lord and you serve him, and when you had a closeness to him that is gone, well, I'll tell you, I know the problem, though I don't know you personally. The problem is sin has come in. And if you will humbly repent of that sin and confess that to the Lord Jesus today, your fellowship will be renewed. Like the illustration I gave in the message, the clouds will break away and the sun will shine, and you'll have this sense of being clean and pure again in your relationship with him. I hope that you'll do that as a Christian who is away from the Lord. And then if you'll email us or write us and let us know that God has done that work, we'll be happy to send you some literature that I think you'll find helpful. Now, there are also people listening, I'm sure, you've never come into that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that I've spoken about. In fact, right now, you're not in his family because you've rejected his son, the Lord Jesus. May I beg you today, if God is convicting you of your sins, there's only one message that the Bible has for you, And that is simply repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And by believe, I mean this, that you cease to try to please the Lord with your own good works and you begin to just put your confidence and your faith in the fact that Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was buried in a grave and he arose again for your justification. And today, if you'll just turn to the Lord and pray and ask him to cleanse you and tell him you're putting your faith in him, you're no longer going to trust in what you can do. You're going to trust in what has already been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that, he'll save you. And when you do that, again, please contact me through the information on the screen. And we want to help you in your Christian life. We'll send you some literature that will help you begin your Christian journey. Thank you again for watching today. May God bless you and give you a good week until we see you again here on the Baptist Temple Hour.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Baptist Temple Hour. If you would like a copy of today's program, send your request and payment to the Florence Baptist Temple, P.O. Box 12809 Florence, South Carolina 29504 Be sure to include today's date and the title of today's message. And please allow two to three weeks for delivery. For more information about the Florence Baptist Temple, visit our website at www.fbt.org. We also want to extend to you an invitation to join us in person. Sunday school starts every week at 9 a.m. and the service begins immediately following at 10.30 Once again, the church family at the Florence Baptist Temple wants to thank you for tuning in this week, and we hope to see you next week for another edition of the Baptist Temple Hour.